News Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Overcast, gray, cloudy day here in Kamloops. We've got an exciting show to start off the week. Uh, we're going to talk to the mayor of Clearwater, Merlin Blackwell, in a little bit about the devastating news in his community about Canfor shutting down its Vavenby sawmill. We'll also get an update on education talks between teachers in the province without going BCTF President Glenn Hansman at the bottom of the hour. And we'll finish the show up talking about how the human body deals with low levels of oxygen at higher altitudes. But first, as we do every single Monday morning, and uh, good to have her voice on the show as I come back from holidays. Good morning to Acumen Law's Kyla Lee. Good morning, Kyla. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Nice to talk to you again. Yeah, nice to talk to you as well. Hey, um, so we all know there's these big ICBC changes. They're coming up on September 1st. You and I have talked a little bit about that uh, before. Uh, they're going to alter the entire system to follow the driver, uh, not the vehicle as we see now. Uh, and as we learned late last week, even though those changes are looming September 1st, as of today, any serious driving conviction is going to lead to uh, what ICBC is calling a substantial increase in optional insurance rates. Uh, as again, I mentioned, they're not coming until September 1st, but as of right now, uh, what you do on the road could impact the rates you pay as of September. Kyla, ICBC is selling these changes as, as making sure higher risk drivers are being held to account. Uh, but what do you think? Well, I think that they need to really reconsider their definition of what constitutes a high risk driver because they're talking about a single cell phone conviction, which can be something as simple as like not having your phone mounted while you're using it for GPS, or for somebody who has an N, um, just having the phone in the vehicle and playing music through the speakers of the vehicle. You're not allowed to do that with your N. That doesn't make you a high-risk driver. It's not behavior that actually contributes to dangerousness on the road in the same way that actually using the phone in the common sense way does, but that's the definition they're employing. Another example. Beyond that, yeah. Another oh, example I, I heard you mention on Twitter is the seatbelt one, which I thought was rather interesting. Yeah, this is ridiculous. It, 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 two seatbelt tickets will constitute high-risk driving, such that your insurance premiums go up, which to me is absolutely disconnected from reality. There's no sense in saying that you not wearing a seatbelt on two occasions makes you more likely to get in an accident, more likely to cost the insurance company money. You don't pose a public safety risk. And if you don't wear your seatbelt, really the damage is going to be on you at the end of the day. And maybe ICBC could take that into consideration in whether or not you're ultimately going to get much of an, an award for the, the injuries that you suffered in the collision for not wearing your seatbelt. Now, in those changes, um, ICBC, and we, again, we don't really know. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, listen, uh, we're going to do these things and bad drivers are going to be punished. And everyone goes, oh, okay, that's great. Bad drivers will be punished. Uh, but I think uh, as we get down to it, and, and the point I think you made there is, is the definition of, of who is a bad driver. A lot of people out there say, hey, I'm not a bad driver. But under this system, perhaps they could be. Now, as part of this, they're going to have a three-year scan of your driving record. Uh, we learned uh, last week that effective today, that's when the scan will begin. So uh, they'll look back beginning June 10th, 2022 in a three-year scan of your driving record. So if you get busted speeding or uh, any number of minor infractions, this is going to hit you. But I, I guess where I come in is is we were promised that we're going to get some kind of tool to uh, get a clearer picture of what the dollar impact will be. We're using a lot of you know broad language, not not defined language about whether it's all substantial. It's all we, we don't know in an individual case what this exactly means. Do we need to know that? 
We do need to know that. People need to plan because they're not just looking at a three-year scan of your driving record for incidents that occurred prior to this. They're looking for convictions that occurred as of today. So if you had a speeding ticket in dispute and you go to court today and you're convicted at the end of your at the end of your court hearing today, you're going to be punished with insurance increases on the basis of that speeding ticket that you may have got eight or ten months ago. Now, people, if they had been told what the dollar value of this could have weighed the risk, $138 for the speeding ticket versus, who knows, a $600 insurance increase, they don't have the option of weighing that risk and making a decision before these changes are going to impact them about whether or not they want to proceed with existing court cases. And I think that puts people in a position of disadvantage, and I think it's unfair. You mentioned, and the definition we have right now is, and I'll just sort of quote from from the release, serious driving convictions such as criminal code offenses, impaired driving, excessive speeding, distracted driving, will all result in increased premiums after conviction number one. So you, all you got to do is get one conviction. Minor offenses are calling, such as speeding, failing to stop or yield, and or not wearing a seatbelt, result in increased premiums if there are two or more convictions during the scan period. Is that is that a, a defined enough field for you or no? No, they haven't even identified what else constitutes a minor offense. You know, they've given a couple examples there. But is crossing a solid line because you didn't, you know, you didn't get into the turn lane fast enough, is that also considered a minor offense? Is not displaying your end sign considered a minor offense? All of these things are convictions that go on your driving record. Um, many of them carry, you know, two points or, or um, depending on what section you're charged under, three points for the no offense, uh, no end offense. If those are defined as minor offenses that could give rise to insurance increases, people need to know that information and they need to know the extent of the financial impact it's going to have on them. And they need to know that before the changes are going to impact them. And the government has kept that information secret and now it's too late we are three months uh, before the big changes happen september 1st this year uh in your mind is there any logical rationale for saying okay today june 10th three months before all of this comes into effect uh we have made these changes so that in essence um you're going to see repercussions for your driving behavior three months beforehand is there a reason for that does it make sense to you or why or as opposed to just saying okay here we go september 1st here's the full enchilada I think they're trying to warn people, but, um, and, and fair enough, they're trying to let people know what's about to come and maybe encourage people in the meantime to correct their driving behavior before the changes come into effect. But if they're going to warn people, again, as I've said, they need to give everybody all of the information they need to know about how this is going to impact them, because otherwise they may as well just implement it on September 1st and surprise us all with what's coming anyway. <laughs> now, uh, sort of apropos to this, uh, research uh, co-polling people on driving behavior, uh, they found some interesting findings saying that, uh, at least perceptionally, that people in neighborhoods uh, more in the north uh, and uh, in the Fraser Valley than in, in Metro Vancouver, oddly enough, find that uh, they're dealing with speeders through their neighborhood streets uh, more often than not at least once or twice a day. Um, now, the, the effort to tackle that is to lower speed limits to 30 kilometers an hour, and, and now we have these changes uh, three months before the ICBC full rollout, um, uh, at least in Vancouver, going down to a lower speed limit. What do you think about this? Is this just going to add into the, the overall problem that people are going to face when they get tickets or no? 
Oh, of course, because as soon as you lower the speed limit, we already know people aren't um, abiding by the existing speed limit. If people are concerned about speeders on their residential streets, it's not because those people are going 30 or 40 kilometers an hour. It's because they're going faster than 50. If they're not abiding by the 50 kilometer an hour speed limit, they're also not going to abide by a 30 kilometer an hour speed limit. So it's only going to expose more people to greater consequences. And if you lower the speed limit to 30, and people are going, you know, 60 or 70. As soon as you hit that 40 kilometer an hour threshold, that's when you you trigger these excessive speeding convictions. I was actually really surprised that at the level of support there was publicly, particularly out of the lower mainland, for these changes. So that, that was interesting to me. It seems to me that, that, that enforcement plays a pretty significant role here, no matter what we do. Uh, is, is enforcement a better, should we be enforcing the existing rules instead of, you know, changing them all the time so people are confused? Oh, the speed limit yesterday was this. Suddenly I'm looking at this today. What the hell is going on? Absolutely. Enforcement is a huge critical component. And the reality is that we don't see police enforcing speed limits on these quiet residential streets. They're not parked there with their radar guns. They're not, um, they're not driving those streets to look for speeders. They're not doing you know, proactive patrols. They're limiting those things to the more dense, congested streets, the main roadways um, and highways where they're more likely to catch speeders. So it would be nice to see the government, rather than looking into changing the law, confusing people and imposing more consequences on drivers, actually spend the money on putting officers on the ground. Studies have shown that the more you have a perception that you're going to be caught doing something, the less likely it is you're going to do it. So if we created this public perception that speeders on residential streets are likely to be caught speeding and likely to be ticketed for it, we would probably see a a corresponding decline in the amount of people that are doing it, which might eliminate the need to lower the speed limit after all. And my last question is on a slightly different topic because I'm curious to, to hear what you have to say about this. Andrew Murray, who is the uh, CEO of Mothers Against Drunk Driving Canada, telling CTV News recently, and I'll quote here, cannabis presence is the leading cause of fatalities on our roadways, not only in Ontario where he was speaking, but right across Canada. What do you think of that? I think that that is completely disconnected with any scientific research and with the reality of driving behavior. First of all, he's equating the presence of cannabis in somebody's body to a cause of fatalities. Having THC or any other byproduct of cannabis in your body doesn't mean that your driving was affected by it. Um, and pres- he's, he's, he's conflating the idea of presence with impairment, which is a huge problem. And then there's no statistical evidence to support that cannabis is the leading cause of deaths on the roadways. What about speeding? Were we not just talking about that? What about alcohol-impaired driving, where we know the deaths result from people who are impaired by alcohol. What about distracted driving, which the government has consistently said is overtaking speeding and is overtaking um, impaired driving as a cause of death? Where are these numbers coming from? Absolutely. Kyla, always a pleasure. Uh, Good to hear your voice again. Look forward to chatting with you next week. Thank you. Have a nice day. You as well. That's Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. We talk to her every Monday morning here on The Woodford Show. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we'll talk to Clearwater Mayor Merlin Blackwell. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back. More bad news for BC's forestry industry. In May, Toco announced it's closing its mill in Quinell. 150 there unemployed. Another 90 laid off at its Kelowna mills. We know Toco announced the same a while back for its merit mill, rocking that community, and the hits just keep on coming. 
Canfor announcing last week its Vavenby sawmill will be closing next month in July, leaving 170 over 170 mill workers in that community and in nearby Clearwater without jobs. And the company is also selling off its forest tenure for $60 million to Interfor. Pleasure to be joined on the program, though the topic is, is not a pleasant one to discuss, I'm sure. Uh, here's Clearwater Mayor Merlin Blackwell. Good morning, Merlin. How are you? Good morning, Shane. It's uh, another day at work here, apparently, but uh, yeah. not not the best circumstances, but uh, this is what we're dealing with right now, so yeah. we'll start shoveling. Okay, uh, Merlin, uh, how's the, obviously this is a big blow for the community. Um, how, what's the response like up there? What, what options are on the table to the best of your knowledge right now? Um, we're meeting with CAN Coordinator 4 this morning as council uh, with some of the other um, government stakeholders in town. This deal seems to be going forward. Um, there are some people that seem to wish to impose it. Um, but, uh, yeah, knowing the condition of things right now, um, I don't know how much success there's going to be there. Options on the table, obviously, council and uh, staff have been working on a few things in anticipation of this potentially going down. We've, we, we went through this 10 years ago when Canfor did a multi-year shutdown and, and 10 years before that when warehouses were shut down. So uh, we've got a pretty strong template and plan uh, and ready for this sort of thing. So we're looking at things like wildfire, fuel mitigation, uh, for work. We did that before for a couple of years, helped things out, um, looking at some sort of other ways of securing some timber for some of the local smaller operations here, and then uh, a few other things down the pipeline, um, including the pipeline. Uh, Trans Mountain right. could come on online here within uh, 10 or 12 days announcing um you know whether they're going ahead and and clearwater is a camp town for that and would be one of the larger centers of operations so it's quite feasible with the skill level of the mill employees um that they could the trans mountain could absorb a bunch of these people at least for a year or two any concern on the community side about the, the selling off of the forest tenure itself to interfere or no i think that is actually one of the biggest concerns i you know the mill itself um, the viability, I don't know how much Canfor's really invested in, in the long term in the mill, but losing that tenure um, is of deep concern for this community. Um, obviously, you know, there's not going to be a mill between Prince George and Kamloops now other than Gilbert Smith, which focuses on cedar. Um, and that seems a little silly to a lot of people. Um, it's very concerning that we, you would have this much of rural BC without an active sawmill with su such a large timber basket still out there. What, what, if anything, can you do on that front to challenge the selling off of the tenure? I, I don't know intimately the details about how that works, but I, I do know there is a process, and I don't know if council has any muscle there or not. Under Bill 22, community consultation is there, but, you know, this this is the first test, and, and you know, there's some speculation as to what side of uh, the passing of Bill 22 this, this falls under. I think, you know, uh, First Nations would ha definitely have a say in this, uh, as well, and and uh, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if they come out uh, swinging pretty hard on this as well. Um, but yeah, at this point, we're in new ground. Um, I think two years ago, we pretty much wouldn't have a say at all. Um, but we'll, you know, have to keep talking to the province and to the various people involved and see what we can do here. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm quite sure that Interfor and Canfor want this to go ahead smoothly and quickly. Um, I know there's a, a 90 to 100 day our 120-day consultation period, and, and that really hasn't begun yet, but uh, we'll see. So there's a 
sort of a bitter irony to all this. Uh, this comes as, as the Premier and, and his NDP government launch uh, what they call uh, sort of local reforming of how the forest industry works. They're going to go to each local uh, tenure supplier, yeah, even, right? Yeah, so how, yeah. Considering, you know, obviously this, this, this bad blow to your economy in midst of this effort to kind of do a major adjustment here, how, how do these things mesh in your mind, Mark? They really don't. Uh, you know, I, I talked to, I had a face-to-face with a, quite a few mill workers um, yesterday and then the morning before I, I ran into a bunch of logging contractors at, at business. And a lot of them, even though it would really hurt financially, would kind of hope that this would this deal would get slowed down and not approved in a hurry just to take in sort of the consultation process that's going to go on with looking at TFLs and, and TSAs and, and or sorry, TSAs, I guess, and, and and the sort of future plans that this government seems to, to have for that um, that industry and, and, the, and the, uh, how that's going to look for the future going forward. Do you have any plans on in, in getting Doug Donaldson or the Premier on the phone or, or some face-to-face time at all and kind of take some of these issues directly to them anytime soon or no? Uh, we met with Doug Donaldson on uh, Wednesday morning uh, via phone, um, had quite a long, productive conversation. Um, help is on the way, obviously, the transition team's on his way. But I, I did invite uh, Mr. Donaldson to come up and uh, have a face-to-face here in town. Um, you know, we were, it was all polite and fairly positive and, and uh, lots of sort of... Uh, hope came out of that phone call as far as help, but I think uh, it would be great if uh, the minister and, and some of the team from the NDP government, Premier, would be great. Come on up and talk to these people. Come look at the situation firsthand, and, uh, and maybe we can come to a different solution on this. Now, you could make a pretty good argument. The writing's been on the wall for the forestry industry since uh, pretty much, you know, the, the beetle epidemic here. Um, yeah. What, In your mind, what does Clearwater do to chart a path forward. I mean, you've got Wells Gray there. That's obviously a huge bounty. It's a lovely yeah. community. How do you transition, I don't know if you want to say away or off of or diversify off of some yeah, of these we, industries? For sure. We, we've been looking at diversification the entire time since incorporation 11 years ago, and, and a lot of it is to do with the last can foreclosure and the warehouse closure before that. So first one up, uh, we've been lobbying quite a long time, and I think we'll finally get some traction, is better internet cell phone coverage. It's almost non-existent around town here and very poor in town for the most part. So getting those people that come in with the 80000 or the $60,000 work-at-home job or the $100,000 home-based business, we're we're not really getting them because we kind of um, uh, you know we need that that infrastructure. So Kathy McLeod and Peter Middlebar were up a couple times. So we're going to lobby hard and hope to get some traction. We've also met with General Manager Telus on that. So that's one. Second one right off the bat is uh, Tosico Mines bought the ore property above um, Bavenby, right above the sawmill. Um, there's a 400 to 600 person. Um, a potential employer there with a copper body that made it all the way through to approval, environmental approval process under the last owner's yellowhead mines. Um, and hopefully there's a way to get that um, uh, approval process sped up for Tosico if Tosico does want to go forward. And we've had some preliminary talks with Tosico and they're very interested in the quality of that body. And it, you know, unlike Ajax, nobody's going to really... Um, 
protest it too much because it is a little farther from a town and a lot of the conditions are a lot better on that one. And then in the interim, we're looking at, you know, as I said, wildfire uh, fuel management around town um, and actually just cracked the pad- plot open on Wells Gray Park. Um, that was just finished a couple uh, months ago by Foresight, and there's a there's a few million dollars potentially worth of um, wildfire reduction in Wells Gray Park that would need to go on uh, to support the tourism economy um, moving forward and, and put a safeguard on that. Merlin, uh, uh, not the best of topics, and uh, we're thinking about uh, your community up there for sure, but yeah. uh, we want to wish you guys the best going forward. Always good to talk to you personally, uh, and uh, we'll we'll touch base soon. Yeah, thank you, Shane. It's it's you know it's been really heartbreaking having those uh, heartbreaking having those personal conversations with some of these mm. people at the table. I mean, these are really smart, intelligent people that have decided to work out here and have this lifestyle here in Clearwater. And uh, and uh, yeah, they're a little lost right now on this one and and starting to get pretty angry as well. Yeah, I can only imagine. Merlin, as always, yeah. thanks for the time, sir, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thank you, Shane. Bye. That is uh, the mayor of Clearwater, Merlin Blackwell, discussing. Uh, sawmill closure in his town, over 170 people uh, potentially out of work there. A transition team on its way, as you heard. Uh, he wants the Premier and, and Forest Minister Doug Donaldson to come to the community and sit down with some of these people and talk about their future. We'll take a quick break here in the Woodford Joke. Get caught up in the news. On the other side, a bargaining update between teachers in the province with BCTF President Glenn Hansman. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back. A real pleasure to welcome to the program the outgoing president of the BC Teachers Federation, Glenn Hansman. Good morning, Glenn. How are you? Hi, Shane. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always good to talk to you. Okay, uh, pretty basic question here. We're uh, June 10th. Uh, I know you and I have talked at length about this over the last handful of months or so. Uh, both sides had a self-imposed deadline to reach a deal by the end of June. Uh, last time I talked to you, things had entered some rough waters after a pretty cordial start uh, on the class size and composition front. So I guess the basic question to you, uh, with about 20 days to go, will we see a deal or no? The likelihood of getting a deal before the end of June if the employer's proposals that make class size and class composition worse, if those are still there, it's about a 0% chance that there'll be a deal before the end of June. Has there been any momentum on the class size and composition front? I know that the proposal on the table uh, did not go over well with the union and its members. Is there any movement on that, uh, Glenn, or no? Uh, not at this point. The employer did come with a an alternate proposal, but hasn't removed its original one. So it's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure at this point. Either pick option A, which our members wouldn't go for, or option B, which also would take most of our members backwards, and they also want to go for. And so at this point in time, it's hard to see where a deal might lie, given that the thing that that dispute here is the very same topics that teachers fought for 14 years through the courts. There were multiple strikes over, and ultimately we were successful at getting class size and class composition and specialist teacher ratios back into our collective agreements. And that's what's generated the 3,700 jobs that have been restored into the K-12 system and that are working directly with students. And our members are not going to be forfeiting that language. And so it's definitely a big stumbling block. If that wasn't there and if government equipped its bargaining team with some more money to work with, then things would start moving ahead. I mean, when we commenced this several months ago, 
we thought we could get it wrapped up, especially looking at what happened in the other public sector agreements. But none of the other public sector unions had to deal with proposals that would make things worse for their members and would reduce services in their sector. I want to get into the class size and composition in a sec, but just on the overall uh, situation, uh, you told me, I mean, we had... We have a buffer zone. Uh, there's a June 30th self-imposed deadline, but the new school year doesn't start until September. So you, you have a cushion there, a little time to work with. Um, any dates, to the best of your knowledge, scheduled past the June 30th deadline into the summer yet or no? Not as yet. We've uh, offered dates in July and August and September and October as well. Um, thus far, the employer hasn't said yes to that. But the teams are meeting face-to-face again this morning, and so um, you know, hopefully we will get agreement on that. I mean, it, if those proposals from the employer are still on the table, we're going to need those dates because um, there isn't anything there now that we could agree to. You know, bottom line, our members aren't going to agree to something that's worse than what they currently have, and nor would we be in a, in a rush to, uh, to to go there. And so it's very unlikely that there'll be a deal reached before the end of June. And so if we need those summer dates, then we should utilize them, and it could very well be that we're negotiating into the fall. You have seen a few of these things. I'm just on a personal level, on a sort of gut level, um, what's your concern right now about the possibility of going down the quote-unquote sort of same old path uh, about, a, you know, what are the chances in your mind right now of perhaps a strike or a lockout or, or heaven forbid, a, a possible disruption of the new school year? Is that is that alarm bell starting to ring a little in your mind or no? No, that's not really a conversation right now. I mean, just on a, a personal and gut level, uh, we're just very disappointed. There's a lot of um, uh, anger, puzzlement, disappointment, sadness, that a new government would have tabled very similar proposals that the previous one did. And there's a disconnect between the sort of messaging that the NDP government is giving around, you know, it's great that all these jobs are back in the system. We want to enhance services. We're not going to be like the previous government. We're not going to be like the Ford government in Ontario. And yet the proposals that they've authorized at the bargaining table would see reduction in services to kids in Kamloops, in Prince George, in Vancouver, on the island, all over the place in British Columbia. So it doesn't add up. And I would um, think it'd be fair to say that the average MLA and the average school trustee hasn't actually been given a ledger that would show what the plus or minus effect on teacher staffing would be if their proposals were implemented. And I think at this juncture, given how long this is dragging on for, uh, given the tension that's playing out and given how frustrated everybody is, trustees and MLA should be asking for that so they can understand, oh, this is what it is that the teachers are upset about it. And I would suspect that they don't want to see services cut in their community too. And so I know um, the Premier has been using language like the language needs to be modernized. For sure the language needs to be modernized. We've tabled some proposals that will change it too. But we shouldn't be looking at changes that take away services. We should be identifying where the gaps are and saying, aha, in this school district, we need to catch them up with special education funding. They don't have as much staffing as the neighboring school districts. And let's address that without taking away from any of the neighboring school districts. Just to ask sort of the same question in a different frame, on the last Inside Politics, my Friday political show, 
uh, which I had a couple weeks ago before I went on vacation. Keith Baldry advised teachers to make financial preparations in the event of a strike or a lockout. From your perspective, is that good advice or no? Well, I mean, I think we'll be going into a new school year and school will start like normal. Uh, what happens in the fall is another matter. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that teachers have been locked out. Um, but I'm still hopeful that we could reach a deal at the table. I'm hoping that uh, wiser heads will prevail on the government side and that at some point, once they fully understand the, what impact their proposals would have practically for students and for teachers on the ground, that they'll yank them. It's just sad <laughs> that it's uh, now two and a half months since those proposals have been placed on the table and they haven't seen fit yet to do that. And so the moment they do that and the moment they authorize BCPC to be spending a bit more money um, on this deal, we'll probably start to get some momentum and get it all wrapped up. Um, we know full well that we can't solve every problem under the sun in a short-term agreement, and that's why we parked a bunch of things. And we don't expect that every proposal that we have on the table will see the light of day um, ultimately, but we want to have meaningful conversations about those things. But right now, so much bandwidth and airtime has been gobbled up um, talking about concessionary proposals that are on the table that it should, should have never been placed there. And so the moment that goes away, I think it will take a lot of angst and concern of the system um, and ultimately we want the same thing that parents do we want stability we want students to get the supports they need nobody is itching to be on a picket line on class size and composition and uh, again i'm not at the table here but i'll just sort of pass on where, where i believe things stand based on, on sort of me looking at the situation from where i am uh, my understanding is BCPC wants some local decision-making at the district level about how resources are used in school districts, uh, considering sort of the classroom workload. You guys have proposed, to the best of my knowledge, uh, sort of a harmonizing contracts across the province so that each school district has sort of a weighted classroom composition language, uh, especially for special needs students. Uh, BCPC's come back and said that would add billions in costs. Uh, how do you chart a path forward if all those things are true? Well, uh, yes or no. I mean, the bottom line for us is pre preserving superior provisions that we have um, across the province. And so we haven't tabled a one-size-fits-all approach, um, but we are looking at how we can um, address some of the gaps out there. For example, we've got four school districts in the province, Prince George and West Vancouver and Haida Gwaii and Peace River North, which includes Fort St. John, that don't have any class size language from grades 4 to 12. And so we've proposed a provincial approach that would uh, take effect in those school districts. Likewise, for the school districts around the province that don't have any reference to class composition in the collective agreement, we proposed a mechanism to do that, that not everyone around the province would have to use. And maybe it's not the best uh, mechanism, and maybe the variables in it, uh, the province might feel are too costly right now, but um, given the acute needs that are out there to address um, accommodations for students with special needs. We think it's money worth spending, but that should be up for discussion. But we're not looking for a one-size-fits-all approach to the entire province. And it's always, in terms of the employer's need for flexibility and local discussions, it's always within the ability of the province and school districts to staff above the bare minimums in the collective agreement. The guarantees that teachers have negotiated into their collective agreement and which resu resulted in the restoration of all these teaching jobs are meant to be a floor that the employer can ever go under. But if there's gaps or there's kids that need more support, 
by all means, school districts can staff better than that, and the province can fund better than it is right now. We still have one of the worst funded education systems in the country, if you just look at the operational funding. And I've been the first to commend Minister Rob Fleming for the number of new schools he's been announcing and seismic upgrade projects on the the capital part of the budget, the part that pays for buildings and repairs and that sort of stuff. They've been doing awesome on, but on the operational side, the side that provides services to kids, the money, the new money that's in there has only really come about through enrollment growth. We have more kids on the system and for paying for implementing our core win. So now we have to talk about all those other things that have accumulated. Whether we address that through the collective agreement or not, is that's the part that's up for discussion. But we're having a hard time even having those discussions so long as there are proposals from the employer on the table that would take us backwards um, to a pre-court win set of circumstances. Glenn, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on and give us, uh, giving us an update. Thank you. That's Glenn Hansman, president of the BC Teachers Federation, providing a little snapshot into the state of talks. Uh, as you heard him say there, the chances of a deal uh, between before between now and that self-imposed deadline at the end of June uh, not looking too good. We'll keep an eye on that situation. Quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll talk about June being Brain Injury Awareness Month. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back. June is Brain Injury Awareness Month. Real pleasure to welcome the program to discuss this. The Director of Physical Therapy at Helios Medical Technologies, Kim Skinner. Good morning, Kim. How are you? <laughs> and as you heard, uh, apparently she is not there yet. So uh, we're working to get hold of uh, Kim Skinner here. It's uh, just a few minutes left in the show. Uh, that's funny. Uh, so we'll try and get her on. Uh, we, as you, as I just alluded to there, June is Brain Injury Awareness Month. Uh, approximately 350,000 people in this country living with what's called a chronic balance deficit after suffering uh, a mild to moderate traumatic brain injury. I'm waiting to talk to Kim Skinner, Director of the Physical Therapy at Helios Medical Technologies, about what exactly uh, that is and, and what can people can do to, to combat that for uh, what looks like a pretty sizable chunk of the population uh, who is dealing with a chronic balance deficit. Uh, the rest of the month, of course, is dedicated to brain injury awareness. Uh, always a good cause, a good thing to, to dive into, uh, maybe send some funding to some local organizations that uh, help people out and that kind of thing. Uh, take the month to inform yourself, get educated. Uh, and again, as I said, maybe donate a little bit of money to help some people out. Uh, dealing with a brain injury is a pretty awful thing. I've covered some stories in the past about uh, people who've had traumatic brain injury and uh, not a pleasant thing to deal with. Uh, lots of challenges for them and their family. So always good to have uh, resources for them to, to use and, and to, uh, to rely on to help them walk and navigate a particularly difficult path. Uh, have we got Kim yet or no? Doesn't sound like we have Kim yet. Uh, why don't we just, uh, Matt, maybe we can just go to a quick commercial break and try and figure this thing out, maybe throw in a commercial or two and uh, see if we can locate Kim or, or not. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Well, benefit of live radio, we were hoping to uh, talk to Kim Skinner about Brain Injury Awareness Month. Uh, that was not to be. Uh, so we'll try and arrange to talk to her another time. But uh, Mr. Keene, John Keene, uh, Sports Department is jumping in to fill a little airspace with me here. An interesting topic, 
Uh, we the North is trending pretty big <laughs> yeah. on Twitter. The Raptors potentially yeah. could pull off the biggest finish to what has been an absolutely phenomenal playoff run and pull an NBA title for the first time in its history out of the United States of America. What, what do you think of this thing? Uh, it's just it's unbelievable. I mean, there's so many, you know, like fringe basketball fans don't really have any sort of allegiances here, but what the Raptors have done have just really brought, I think, the nation together on this. And, you know, like I honestly, right now, bet- between a Stanley Cup playoff game and, a, and, a, and an NBA playoff game, uh, the NBA playoffs have been so exciting. The Raptors have been so fantastic down the stretch. And I'm sure even yourself, you know yeah. what, not a basketball guy probably. No. but I used know. to be a long time ago because yeah, sure. I grew up with like Michael Jordan and Larry Bird, yeah, me too. what I would yeah. consider sort of the golden era. Yeah. Uh, and I lost a lot of interest over the years, just yeah. didn't seem to appeal. But I, I'll admit, like the mm-hmm. Toronto Raptors thing's got me engaged. Awesome. Like, I'm, I'm going to go and find a TV to park myself in front of tonight sure. for sure. And, you know, I was just doing, you know, business. We call it streeters when we go yeah. and talk just to people on the street about the Raptors. And I was just out there about the last half hour. Uh, and usually, you know how this can go. It can be like yeah. pulling teeth a little <laughs> bit, right? People don't yeah. really want to talk. I had no problem. I was just in the Lansdowne uh, Village sort of a parking lot there. And people were like, you talking Raptors? Yeah, I got something to say, which <laughs> is so, like, rare for that to happen. So yeah. uh, folks in Kamloops seem to be really... Uh, pumped up about it too. Now, 3-1, that's a pretty good chokehold to have. Yeah. Um, any, I mean, nothing's done until it's done here, but uh, any chance that they, this could go sideways? Oh, big time, big time, because uh, I, right now Golden State has yet to have Kevin Durant in this series, and he's uh, regarded as the other head of the two-headed monster or three-headed monster, uh, and he's yet to play because of a calf injury, and they're being very coy with him today. Uh, so we don't know. Play. We don't know yet. I, I can't see it. It's one of those things. There's always some posturing to make the other team prepare for the potential of him playing. Uh, I don't think he's going to give it a go. If he does, he'll, he'll do it, but he won't be 100%. And, and that could be a lift uh, for, for Golden State tonight. So in your mind, how important is it that they close the book tonight? as opposed to, you know, flowing a little fuel on the Golden State fire here. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. But if the Raptors can't get it done tonight, I mean, they should have no problem going back to Golden State, back to Oakland. They beat them twice already in this series. They beat them there in the regular season. They kind of own that building. Uh, mm-hmm. Raptors fans have been loud. So, you know, it would be great to do it tonight. Honestly, it would be. I mean, it would be a storybook ending. But if they can't do it, of course, you know, they got game six and if needed, game seven. But you're right. There's a lot to be said about, you know, finishing the job tonight yeah. when you have all the momentum and not giving them a sniff here. Any idea what the sort of sports scene will look like in Kamloops? You think people are uh, going to be parking in front of the TV, heading down to the bar to watch this thing? Any sense there? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's Monday night, so I'm not sure of how hardcore people are going to get with, <laughs> uh, with the drinks, but I know we have, we have some calls into some of the local establishments to see what's going on here. I just think a lot of people have just been taking this in at home and, and just trying to experience it from their home, because it really hasn't been something that we've seen before. It really yeah. it reminds me, you remember the 92-93 Blue Jays, right? Yes, absolutely. Everybody remembers where they were when Joe Carter hit that home yeah, run and yeah. all that stuff here. I think this is sort of our version of this, you know, 25, 26 years later. You know what fascinated me about that? Because that played out amazingly here in Canada. The yep. country was united. We all were, I remember being in a bar. I was not a big baseball guy either, mm-hmm. but I remember being in the bar and being super yeah. excited about yeah. that run. Yeah. But in the United States, the idea of a World Series title going to Canada did not go over huh. very well at all. Yeah. And I'm curious whether we'll see a similar reaction play out should the NBA title exit. Well, remember, the Golden State Warriors are hated by the other (laughs) teams in states, right? Because they made this dream team. I mean, they went out and got, you know, Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and and Kevin Durant was their big signing. So there's a lot of hate about the big, bad, evil empire that is the Golden State Warriors. So it's funny, if you go on Twitter, uh, on some of these Twitter sites and, and handles like Golden State, 
all the comments after a loss are from other fans just being like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just here for the comments is the, is the phrase, right? So I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, upswell support for the Raptors uh, south of the border as well. I yeah. definitely think that people want to see this done. Yeah, awesome. Well, we'll have to see what happens later. John, thanks for helping me kill some time. Great topic. Uh, it'll almost be interesting to see if the team gets invited to the White House. Oh, think. yeah. Well, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps, you know, we could, you know, invite him on our home soil here too. I think we have some sort of uh, assembly in Ottawa. Don't yeah, we? So, I, yeah, I believe we do. Yeah. We might too. All right. Uh, that brings to an end this edition of the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL. Same time tomorrow. 106.7 Logan Lake, 98.1 Blue River, 97.5 Ebola. From CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.